what does it mean for us to become painfully aware? It will invite your full involvement in the world. And that kind of involvement, if you open yourself, is going to include a sense of vulnerability toward others, toward your own fragile existence. It's going to mean letting go of some false sense of security that we all carry around in us. Douglas E. Christie is professor of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University. His books include The Insurmountable Darkness of Love, subtitled Mysticism, Loss, and the Common Life, and The Blue Sapphire of the Mind, subtitled Notes for a Contemplative Ecology. His work explores the early foundations of Christianity and connects its spiritual traditions to important issues in our modern world. In 2001, Douglas founded the journal Spiritus, the flagship journal for the Society for the Study of Christian Spirituality. We speak today about a provocative chapter he recently published titled, Healed and Whole Forever, Spiritual Perception in Nature. I'm Matthew Whitman of BYU's Faith and Imagination Institute. Douglas Christie, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for talking to me. A pleasure. Um, we're talking about a really great essay you recently published. The essay, again, titled Healed and Whole Forever, Spiritual Perception and Nature. It was published in a volume of essays that I loved reading. The volume's titled Proceeding Things Divine and subtitled Towards a Constructive Account of Spiritual Perception. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's a great publisher, but it's priced for academic libraries about 100 bucks. So I'm not sure our listeners will have the opportunity to read your essay but hopefully our conversation will give readers a good sense for what the essay's themes and its tone are. Let me ask you first about um, how you ended up writing an essay for this volume. Did the editors ask you to publish uh, an essay in it, or did you see an announcement about the volume and propose to write the essay? Um, it was the former. Uh, Pavel, uh, Paul, Gabriel uh reached out to me. I had met him once before. Um, at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, and um, we had a great uh, time then meeting and talking, and um, I think he felt that the volume needed something else uh, mm -hmm. that touched on environmental concerns, and he thought about me and reached out to me. That's how it happened, yeah. Okay, um, I, 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 agree. I think he has good judgment there, because I, when I read the volume, I think if your essay weren't in it, it would be missing something. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the essays in the volume are about learning to see God, and what you're writing about is learning to see nature. So I guess my question for you at the gate is this one, is the connection between God and nature at all direct? Is, is learning to see the one uh, the same as learning to see the other one, or is it an indirect thing, meaning, by seeing nature, we can infer things about God, but not necessarily perceive God, per se. Uh, that is a very wonderful question, and, uh, and, and it's not that easy to respond to in a simple way. I would say, at least in the approach that I took, it's more indirect than direct. Um, however, I think implicit in every sentence I wrote in this essay is my own conviction about the sacramental incarnational reality of christianity which i think invites if not a direct seeing then a, a kind of a mediated seeing that allows the elements of the natural world to manifest the divine 
So that's that's an important principle I think I'm bringing to the work, uh, which I perhaps means that it's both direct and indirect. Okay. All right. Great. Um, for our listeners, how would you summarize uh, your essay's just central, like, core argument? Um, I would say it's asking about a, a similar question to the other essays in the volume, what it means to see and perceive um, the natural world, in my case, in the, in the case of my essay, and, and also the issue of holism. I, I, I broach right at the beginning. Um, it seems to me that a lot of our seeing has become fragmented and that our capacity to sense and feel ourselves to be part of a whole, which is also a, a hugely important principle in ecological thought as well as theological thought, has become diminished. So the question I'm posing perhaps throughout the essay is, can we learn to perceive the world and ourselves as part of the world as whole? And then I proceed to uh, examine that question in various ways. Yeah, that's a great summary of the of the of the kind of the, the core issue of work in the in the in the essay. You know, I, I, years ago, I, I got really involved in this question about the fragmentation of experience. I wrote a a book that took this on, not by way of either ecology or theology, but by way of literary history. It's a fascinating, large subject. And I mean, your essay's first sentence poses the really important question here. And I mean, I'm repeating here your word, uh, your first sentence. You ask this, how can we learn to perceive the natural world more fully, more deeply, on its own terms, but also as part of a larger whole of which we are a part? Why is it um, that we don't see the natural world as fully or deeply as we might. Um, what is it about our uh, global situation that prevents that kind of seeing? Another <clears throat> wonderful question. Um, Too big, probably. I, but <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I'm not sure I can give a full and complete answer to that. I, I would say that part of what has informed my own thinking about how we see and perceive or don't see and don't perceive uh, goes back to the um, ancient Christian monastic traditions and their own struggle to understand how elements of our own self-preoccupation, um, Evagrius of Pontus, one of the great monastic writers of, of the fourth century, you know, gave us the, these eight principal thoughts or passions or logismoi these are this is a very rough and ready template that he used to say wow um, here are some fundamental ways in which we have become blind to ourselves blind to one another to the world to god and um, it's rooted in a particular christian ethos i think of, of um, an understand particular understanding of, of human anthropology and sin and so forth but it's remarkably apt as we think about some of the struggles that we face in our own time of learning to see ourselves learning to see beyond ourselves um struggling to kind of um find a way to allow these elements of our own 
psyches that um, block our vision from uh, not having such a terribly strong hold on us and, and, and dominating our existence. So I'm, I'm addressing the question in a way, in, in the most personal way to begin with. And there, there would be things to be said about the implications of learning to see uh, this way uh, more holistically, more openly, with less fear and anxiety for for how to live in the world, in the larger world. But but I think that's something that I've noticed in, in the Christian spiritual tradition, but also in certain environmental writers, how to um, clarify our own capacity to see and be in the world, which means in a, in a classic spiritual sense, facing ourselves, struggling with ourselves, healing our own uh, fragmented selves so that we can actually see. I love how you come at that question by way of invoking kind of the classical Christian spiritual tradition, the you know, fourth century of Agrius Pontius and, and forward. Because, you know, it, for a lot of um, modern scholarship, all these problems have kind of like a much more modern origin, 18th century, 19th century. You know, I'm thinking about arguments about kind of the postmodern fragmented world that traces itself back to kind of the uh, kind of globalized, capitalized state of the world where, you know, our, we live by kind of bringing in, you know, kind of commodities and products from various parts of the world. We don't know how they're produced or manufactured. Therefore, we can't always see wholly the parts of which our lives are made. We don't know where our food comes from where our clothes come from, how our computers work. But you point out, this is not a new thing. This is, this is not a function of our postmodern uh, condition. This really is a much deeper tradition. I love that uh, setup. I really do, Douglas. Well, you, your, your response just now also, if I may say so, um, fills out the picture in a very helpful way. Because if, if there's any truth in what I said about the ancient tradition, you are also pointing out some of the many ways in which our own uh, modern postmodern situation makes it difficult to see and some of these realities are economic political they're, they're not just inward spiritual struggles so i appreciate you uh referencing that it's very very important okay good the two sides of the picture i guess you know one of your gifts as a writer that i really admire is you're so good at bringing readers into a scene that feels really uh, dense with meaning, very evocative. And to illustrate, I wonder whether you might read the second paragraph of your essay, then I'll ask you a couple questions about it. Sure. The light is slowly bleeding from the desert sky, silhouette of mountains in the distance, whispery mesquite branches tremor in the breeze, the pungent smell of soil and the sage, still damp from recent rains, bats circling in and out of the darkness. It is quiet, still, open. I pause to locate myself here to take in all that is unfolding around and within me, the whole of it. My senses are alive, my thoughts drifting. In this moment, I find myself thinking of the small community of Cistercian nuns who live over the next ridge gathering at this moment in their chapel for Compline. I call to mind also those hidden figures, unknown to me, but even now passing through these mountains on their way north, skirting La Migra, and seeking shelter wherever they can find it. God help them. 
I hear a low rumbling sound from somewhere in the distance, mining trucks probably, and then silence. What a strange simultaneity, all of this and more present to me here in this fleeting moment, mediated through my senses, my consciousness, my soul. I struggle to take it all in, hold it, respond to it, the whole of it. I love, uh, you know, the the images here, uh, Douglas, light slowly bleeding from the desert sky, um, whispery mesquite branches tremor in the breeze, the pungent smell of soil and sage still damp from recent rains. It's lovely. And then there are moments, you know, that aren't about kind of what you're perceiving but uh, externally, but what's you're perceiving internally, thinking about these uh, Cistercian nuns, you know, and... and uh, and 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 the, and the phrase "God help them," etc. It's so. What's happening externally? What's happening internally? It's all very alive here in this scene. There's a sentence that you repeat. It's kind of a refrain. Uh, the sentence is the whole of it. And I guess my question um, is 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 this: Why do you think that we struggle to take in the whole of it, or even better? Why must we struggle to take in the whole of nature? Uh, why not simply take a more pragmatic approach and say, you know, we can't take in the whole of nature, we can't see it all holistically, and so let's just focus on what we can do to find a political solution to our ecological problem. Why not just be pragmatists? Why struggle to take in the whole of it? Um, thank you for that question. Um, I don't think the two need to be set in opposition to each other. And I, I'm sure you sense that as well. Um, if you ask yourself, am I capable of taking in the whole of it? I think for me, the question is, can we open our own consciousness up enough so that we cease dividing one thing from another? We don't divide up the world, the natural world and the human world Laudato Si makes this this plea that we cease doing this in its in its call for an integral ecology, um, and also perhaps it's true theologically. We we have this tradition that has an idea of what used to be called in the early church the economy of salvation. It's not the use of the word economy that we use so much today, but it's a it's a sense of everything and everyone moving together. And and there there isn't any way to think about one part of that fabric without considering every other part of it. So it's a it's a vision of the whole that suggests that we're part of something, pulsing, alive, that every single element of it is calling for our attention and our care and our response. And, um, and, I, and I think there's something true in that we've come to see in ecological literature, the, 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 the call, yes, to, to notice and care for a particular species, perhaps especially those that are in your own neighborhood. Get to know them. Uh, don't imagine that you have to map the whole world, but recognizing also those local species of plants and animals, the river in your own backyard, those mountains, they're knitted into a larger fabric of being. And so opening yourself up to the whole of it is also, I think, part of a spiritual ethical commitment 
to not forget anything or anyone. And um, I, I take that to be just a fundamental uh, invitation that we're facing these days. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be pragmatic in what we try to address in terms of trying to resolve particular environmental uh, problems or issues that we're facing, but our own capacity to lean into that work, I think, will depend on how connected we feel to all of it. So the, the two are the two are bound together, I believe. I, I, I that's that's terrific, Doug. And, you, and Douglas, and you just you just explained uh, really at least described so much of what I love about the discipline, the scholarly discipline of spirituality, uh, in in the sense that it's not at all a non-pragmatic uh, discipline, but it's trying to sort of get a sense for things that are alive and whole that demand um, a greater degree, demand and promise a greater degree of awareness uh, of of the world and other people. It's 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 ethical. Uh, it's also theological, at least it is for many uh, who study it and pursue it. Uh, that was beautifully said. You mentioned in that response uh, there um, Pope Francis, and, and you mentioned in your essay uh, one of his phrases um, that you borrow it concerns the need to become painfully aware, painfully aware of the world. Um, do you see pain as necessary for spiritual vision? And if so, is there anything distinctive about spiritual pain relative to other kinds of pain? And I'm thinking about this question in light of the fact that we live in a culture that is so pain-averse in so many ways. And if, how do you persuade others, you know, in our culture that this kind of pain, painful awareness, is so vital, so necessary? I, I mean, I think it's one of the most important expressions in the whole of Laudato Si, in fact, it, it comes toward the beginning and, and uh, you know, <laughs> if you blinked, you could miss it and, and move on to the, the bulk of the document. But he, he places this invitation right toward the beginning of, of, the, of the encyclical. And um, I feel that it's saying something critical to everything that follows. So what does it mean for us to become painfully aware. I don't think he ever tries to answer that. Pope Francis never tries to answer that in the whole rest of the encyclical, but in laying out all the different elements of what awareness might look like, I think he's signaling that it will invite your full involvement in the world. And that kind of involvement, if you open yourself, is going to include a sense of vulnerability toward others, toward your own fragile existence, it's going to mean kind of uh, letting go of some false sense of security that we all carry around in us, I suppose, and it's I, it's also a normal human defense mechanism. I, I, I don't want to allow myself to feel too much or I will just be overwhelmed. I don't think he's asking for us to succumb to anything like despair not at all it's it's the opposite it's he's inviting an open-hearted response to the reality of pain and suffering in the world in which we ourselves are participating and so 
to me, it's an invitation to be fully human and fully alive and to allow ourselves to be deeply bound to the lives of others. And I think on some deep level, it's actually what we want, even if we're afraid of it. So I appreciate the courage of the invitation. I mean, the courage it takes to make the invitation and to, to not shy away from it, even though the language itself is pretty foreboding. <laughs> we must become painfully aware. And I don't want to sit here in this conversation and pretend that I think there's anything at all easy about that or simple. But I do think it touches into something very profound and beautiful and necessary in this moment. Yeah, I do too. And and when you were talking there, it struck me that um, on the one hand, painful awareness uh, could be you know simply uh, a synonym for something like empathy, right? Empathizing yes. with the pain of others. But the way you described it, I think that painful awareness goes even a step beyond empathy. It's becoming more alive to the world. It's acknowledging that pain is an essential part of what it means to be, in our case, human or part of the natural world. Um, that that before one can empathize, one must have the capacity to feel broadly. It's it's a, it's it's a fundamental, almost like a condition for empathy, right? The capacity to be painfully as well as pleasurably aware of the world around us. I think so. I, I I'm thinking of. Um, I mean, some of these thoughts feel to us a little bit uh, more than we can bear. I know. I, I feel that myself, but. Uh, Aldo Leopold has this uh, beautiful but also haunting statement that the cost of an ecological education is to be alive in a world of wounds. Mm. And I think we all know what he means. Um, and then can that aliveness uh, translate into something that brings us toward a deeper and more meaningful engagement. I, I, I think it did for Leopold, and I think it did for many who've learned from him. So that's part of what it is about as well. It, it opens us to the world. Yeah, I love it. You, know, you make the case um, that we need to learn to listen to and to see like poets. And you mentioned several poets in your essay. You mentioned William Wordsworth, you mentioned Rainer Maria Rilke, and, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and others, and other writers who write poetically. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, Mary Austin, and there are um, others uh, again. Um, why, do you, why do you think that poetry, or at least evocatively poetic writing, is a spiritual discourse? Mm. By the way, I'll add, I teach a class on literature and spiritual experience. We read a lot of poets, so I'm I'm setting you up for something that I believe very deeply myself. <laughs> but I thought I'd, I'd ask yes. you, right, as as a as as a as a as a very um, accomplished scholar in this field, to kind of explain this to our listeners the way you see it. Um, I'll I'll say something about how it seems to me, and, and I I think I'll probably address this in a more personal vein rather than, than trying to give a a, a scholarly answer, uh, as it were. I, on one level, it's often because poets have taken the time themselves to slow down and look and listen closely, and then to allow language to become distilled 
in such a way that we, the readers, can feel the presence of, you know, uh, Jared Manley Hopkins, Lindsay Poplars, or or any number of other cases that you could point to where it's the it's the utter particularity of what's being described that allows what Hopkins calls the inscape of the of the thing, uh, which is a, a way of talking about a kind of a revelation of its full beauty and meaning to shine through and um so that's i think in some ways that's the that's the primary thing for me and i i see certainly in the 20th and 21st century but earlier as well poets who are paying attention to the natural world um they're they're doing sacramental work uh, they, they they may not say that or use that language and i don't want to make them into anonymous christians but in paying that much careful attention they have so much to teach the rest of us including christians who claim the sacramental tradition but aren't always so good at paying attention to yeah. the ordinary particular sacramental realities that we live amidst every day so i think they're important teachers for us to slow us down, to help us look more carefully. And, and of course, the great invitation is to look beyond what they're looking at and to, to, to look that same, with that same intense gaze uh, at the world that we inhabit. And that's where I think the, the value of their work uh, reverberates out so profoundly. And beautifully said. Beautifully said. You know, I was really taken... Uh, by your citation of uh, Mary Austin, <coughs> who's commenting on California's Owens Valley. I wonder if, if I read this passage that you, that you quote, if I read it, if you would then tell uh, our listeners what you find spiritually moving about it. It's really, it's extraordinary. I love this. Uh, here's the passage. Uh, she writes, in quiet weather, Mesa days have no parallel for stillness but the night silence breaks into certain mellow or poignant notes. Late afternoons, the burrowing owls may be seen blinking at the doors of their hummocks with perhaps four or five elfish nestlings a row, and by twilight begin a soft hoo-ooing, rounder, sweeter, more incessant in mating time. It is not possible to disassociate the call of the burrowing owl from the late slant light of the mesa. If the fine vibrations, which are the golden violet glow of spring twilights, were to tremble into sound, it would be just that mellow double note breaking along the blossom tops. Wow, it's so beautiful. <laughs> okay, so how does that illustrate what you were describing a minute ago about poetic vision and poetic hearing? Uh, well, I would say it illustrates it perfectly. Um, no, I mean, it's so she she kind of uh, harmlessly, it would seem, drops the word uh, dissociate yeah. into the middle of this description. And it's not it's not in itself a descriptive term at all, but it, it's the sentence where she hints to you, the reader, what she's up to here. It is not possible to dissociate the call of the burrowing owl from the late slant light of the mesa so i mean i'm sure i had read 
this passage many times. I, I love her book, The Land of Little Rain. It's close to where I live, the Owens Valley. And she's the great poet of, of this part of California where the desert uh, uh, runs up against the, the Sierra Nevadas. Um, but it's that holism again. You cannot dissociate one thing from another. And they're not even the same kinds of things. One is visual, one is auditory. And so, I, I mean, to, to use a term that I think is used sometimes by musicians or, or, or Don Saliers used to use this term often in his theological aesthetic work, it's a form of synesthesia. It, yeah. All these sensory elements are moving together. And I think we have this experience more often than we realize where, I mean, it's not just auditory and visual. We're we're feeling buffeted by the wind or the or the or the shift of temperature or 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 some taste is uh suddenly present to us i mean almost all of our senses are alive so we have these experiences of holism or things not being dissociated and i think it's a glimpse into what this kind of uh vision of the whole can feel like in practice and um and then she 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 reflects on it later and and, and frames it all and just beautifully chiseled prose but there's an experience at the heart of it that is a moment in time when the whole world is moving together and you are inside it and you sense and feel that you are a part of it and there is no dissociating one thing from another it's beautiful. That last line too, just really, it, it, that mellow double note, that hoo-ooing, breaking along the blossom tops, I mean, it's just gorgeous. Um, mm. So uh, turning here, I guess, towards some concluding questions. Uh, you know, your essay brings these wonderful lessons from, this, from the field of spirituality, right, about connecting ourselves uh, in very, uh, in, in deepening ways to the world around us, both the things of God and the things of the natural world. And, and, and you bring those lessons of spirituality uh, to bear on how we perceive the natural world, but say we were to reverse that relationship. Say we were to bring lessons from environmental studies to bear on the field of spirituality. Uh, what might scholars or or people interested in spirituality have to learn from the work of the ecologists? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot. I mean, I I would say for myself, my own re-education uh, as a theologian or as a scholar of spirituality happened in the company of environmental uh, thinkers biologists, entomologists, herpetologists, who I began hanging out with. I began to go to their conferences and gatherings and um, and also um, literary scholars who, who found themselves unable to uh, do without the natural world. And so uh, uh, an entire kind of academic society called the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment grew up, and that was itself a kind of a lesson in the meaningfulness of interdisciplinarity. Literary scholarship that is never 
um, looking away for too long from the fundamental elements of the natural world that are informing the literary creation. Um, what I myself uh, learned, and I learned it in the field from uh, certain uh, biologist friends who, who were generous enough to take me out with them, I learned to see. Mm -hmm. I, I learned to see the world. And, um, you know, uh, the, the Christian spiritual tradition, especially the part of it that focuses on contemplative thought and practice, that's, you know, all about seeing and perceiving and cultivating an awareness of, of the divine and our own souls. Um, it's very humbling to go out in the field with biologists who can see everything and can <laughs> distinguish among minute particulars and who know the names of things. And you begin to feel this is this is again back to Aldo Leopold's uh, beautiful vision of ecological holism um, that there's love being poured into that kind of seeing and care and a sense of intimacy begins to grow and develop. And if you were to ask me, how can that be applied to the work of this you know, spirituality, scholarship, and things like that. I, I would say, I mean, in my in my understanding, it already is. It, it already is uh, present in a lot of the best scholarship. The way scholars of spirituality have learned to uh, not only pay attention to the the general and the abstract, but also to the minute particulars of experience that are often very eloquent, even if they can't be entirely explained or accounted for, but they they exist in, in a kind of a funny, um, improvised uh, space that often uh, shows up in human practices. And the best scholarship in spirituality, in my view, is that which can pay attention to both. The, the, the minute particulars of experience, taking them on their own terms, being respectful of them, not being too quick to assign meaning, and then also allowing the uh, allowing the gaze to move outward from there towards something larger and more capacious and um uh is that a lesson we can learn from uh the the, the fields of, of environmental science i mean perhaps indirectly but the the practice of looking seeing of paying attention and of beginning to notice that you're not only paying attention to the minute particulars of this landscape but that every element that you're taking in is part of this whole and it becomes a habit a way of seeing that you 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 can't see in the old way after a while that's been my own experience and so the practice of looking carefully and closely and deeply i i, I can't i think we can't do it uh, enough, or or uh, give ourselves to it fully enough. It it it's 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 always going to repay our efforts. That kind of deep seeing. Well, in my in my experience, what you're describing uh, is both really important. You're also describing from me how I at least I always associate your own work, Douglas, uh, which is so good at seeing in the way you're describing. I love it. 
Mm. Um, thank you so much for uh, for being a guest on the podcast. It's, it's such a beautiful essay that you wrote. It's really a joy to talk about it with you. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your um, own sensitivity to the questions and um, the way you pose your questions. I appreciate that, that that so much. So, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.